0: Considering prayer, I want us really to take that one step further this morning and talk about what a godly prayer life looks like and really what can hinder a prayer life. You see, prayer is the privilege of every child of God. We read in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who hath given us all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ." One of those greatest blessings that we have is the avenue of approach to a holy God. Hebrews 4 and verse 16, the Bible would there tell us, let us come boldly before the throne that we may obtain grace, or we obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have the opportunity to enter the throne room of God and to make our supplications to Him. Through that mediator, Jesus the Christ, we know Paul would tell Timothy, there is one mediator between God and men the man, Jesus Christ. What a great privilege and blessing to be able to commune with God the Father. So, tonight, this morning when we consider prayer, there are some things that I think we want to talk about. One of the things that can hinder a prayer life is the, that emotion or that feeling of guilt or shame... I know when you've wronged someone, oftentimes we feel maybe a little bit of guilt and we refuse to go talk to them because we might be ashamed of the things that we've done. Maybe in negligence, it was not intended, but we may have said a word, there may have been a look, there may have been something that was out of character or out of place, and we offended another, we hurt another. And it takes some time for us to work up the courage to go back and to make amends, to make things right. I understand that sometimes things can be done in negligence, that we can hurt someone's feelings. There might be that word that is said that's not thought about. But what about the God of heaven? How often do we run God's feelings through, so to speak, with the actions that we do and then feel guilt and not going to God, or, or feel guilt rather, and don't go to God. You might look at the Apostle Paul and his statements concerning himself. We know that he had a very self deprecating view of himself. He says that he was the chief of sinners. He talks about himself persecuting the church of God, quote, and wasting it, hauling fellow Christians off to prison and putting them to death. And yet, he comes into a relationship with the God of heaven and is able to overcome the guilt of those things. How is it that we overcome guilt in a life to make our relationship with the God of heaven, really, how is it that we overcome the guilt of sin and make our relationship better with God? I knew a man who was traveling one night. It was late. He was hauling a cattle trailer. And he was moving along pretty fast. And there was a light that had turned red. And he just did not have time to stop. And the person that was sitting at the light saw it turn green and without even looking pulled out into the intersection and he T-boned that vehicle. Killed the driver instantly. He wrestled with a lot of guilt after that because yes, he was at fault. He ran a red light. Was it an accident? Absolutely it was. He didn't do it deliberately or out of malice. But he struggled with guilt the rest of his life for that individual dying at his hands. I know the person. It is one thing to wrestle with guilt that is done out of something that has been done in negligence. But what about when we willfully perpetrate wrong against the God of heaven? Hebrews 10 and verse 26, the Bible tells us, For if we sin willfully, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversary. He who despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses, of how much sore punishment suppose ye will he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and note what he says, and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. Paul even mentions this in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How do we get over the guilt of willful sin? and come back to God in contrition, I want us to examine a psalm this morning that I think helps us understand a most basic and fundamental principle of the God of heaven, and it's Psalm 32. You may have your Bibles already open to Psalm 51, and that is fine, but really that's the launching off point for what we examine or find in Psalm 32. The background of these two psalms are penitential psalms by the, psalm of, by, uh, by David, by the hand of David. And they really revolve around the the, uh, events in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We know what David did in committing his sin with Bathsheba. We know that he had tried to keep that quiet. We know that in trying to keep it quiet, he killed one of his mighty men. He had them go into battle and advance upon a position, and then he had all of those withdraw from Uriah so that he would be killed and fall to the blows there. So not only do we have adultery... We have premeditated murder. We have the sin of trying to cover up his own sin. And we have this progressively getting worse. And What happens in a life when you begin to cover up sin? Have you ever known those people who have tried to get out of telling a lie by telling another one? By the way, that never works. Okay, You can't cover up sin with more sin. And so what happens, Nathan the prophet comes to David. And he tells him the story of the ewe lamb, and you might recall it. He says there was a rich man and a poor man in a city, the same city. The rich man had flocks, he had herds, he had animals, he had everything that he wanted. The poor man only had one little ewe lamb that he had raised from birth, and it was as a daughter to him. What did the rich man do? He took that man's ewe lamb when he had a visitor come, instead of taking from his own flock, and killed it. And gave it to the stranger or the traveler that was with him. And what happens with David? You see the ire of David just begin to be stoked by this action. And he says, or makes the pronouncement, that he shall pay him back. That man ought to be punished for doing such a thing. And Nathan makes that famous statement to David, Thou art the man. What happens when we try and cover up sin? When we refuse to go to God and refuse to acknowledge it? What happens to our sensibilities? Are they heightened? Does the guilt permeate us so much that we begin to be acutely aware of the wrongs of others? Absolutely. But really, when we look at Psalm 32, I want us to note a few things this morning. The Bible there says, beginning in verses really 1 through 7, we'll, or 3 through 7, I'm sorry, we'll start in verse 3. He says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto you in a time when you may be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall come near unto him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall compass me about with songs of deliverance. You see, we see David's guilt here poured out. Really, in verses 3 and 4, we have the wretchedness of his own impenitence. The fact that he is unwilling to repent of those things. By the way, no other book tends to arrest the emotion like that of the Psalms. I would highly encourage you to read them in the evenings as you sit down and do your evening devotions because they speak to the heart of man. The Proverbs have the ability to attract the mind, the reason, the intellect. They help us in our daily walk, in making right decisions. And God also provides something for the heart, and that is the Psalms. But here we see David pouring out his heart unto God, making the statement, When I was silent, your hand was heavy upon me. What happens when we refuse to acknowledge guilt or wrongdoing? How many of you have been around elementary students? Who you know have done wrong, you watch them do it, and you call them out on it, and they lie about it. How does that make us feel when we see them refuse to acknowledge the wrong that we have seen them do? It can be infuriating. What happens when those who are living around us refuse to acknowledge the wrong that they perpetrate against others? They refuse to repent, they refuse to apologize, they refuse to make things right. It could be infuriating. And they begin to compound for sin and for sin. And things begin to get worse and worse. See, David is like so many in that he did not address the sin that was causing the problem in his life. He ignored it. So many people today refuse to acknowledge the sin to God. Oftentimes a prayer life is affected and Christians fail to pray because they're ashamed of the lives they are living how hard is it to go to someone to whom we have wronged and make things right? That takes humility. And sometimes we're not ready to be humbled yet, are we? David's the king. The king in Israel. He cannot let this get out. Because if it gets out that he's done this horrible thing, people will think very poorly of him, and he will lose the support of the multitudes Do you think that something along those lines maybe might be echoing in his mind? If people know that I've done these things, they won't follow me anymore. I lose my reputation. I lose my influence. How many sins have wrecked marriages and homes and lives because people refuse to acknowledge them? They've jammed them up, refused to go to God, refused to repent, and let it fester and fester and fester. How many of you have trash cans in your house? We do. How long do we go before we take it out, by the way? A week? A month? Three months? Every quarter? Every year? That's absurd, isn't it? We would never, ever have that expectation. But what about the things that fill up in our lives that we need to get rid of? How often do we, maybe, so to speak, take out the trash... How often do we do an inventory and get rid of those things and purge those things that might affect our prayer life and our relationship with God? How often are we assessing our walk, those actions that we do on a daily basis to ensure that they don't pile up, they don't fester, and they don't cause us to drift further and further away from God? You see, because as we begin to develop more and more sin, we begin to develop guilt and shame, and that shame and that guilt can move us away from God. We know, David says just as much. Your hand was heavy upon me when I kept silence. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long when I refused to acknowledge. Then we might move to Psalm 51 and see what really he said at the hearing of Nathan the prophet. Upon hearing these things in Psalm 51 as it was read for us this morning, he then says, against you, You only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. What is that an acknowledgement of? You see, we may wrong others. We may wrong one another horizontally. In this life, we can do wrong to others. But ultimately, all sin is a grievance against the God of heaven. All sin is vertical and violates God's standards and precepts for man's conduct. When we think about sin, David is absolutely right. He acknowledges where his transgression was. He says, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you alone, or you only, depending on how your version might read, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. See, 1 John 1, John would say, If we say we have no sin, really beginning in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we make Him a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. What has to happen before we can have that relationship with God restored in its fullness? You see, sin separates between us and God. Willful sin, that sin that we perpetrate, we might consider Psalm 19 if it's penned by David, we know he says, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sin. Let it not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and innocent from the great transgression. But when we commit willful sin and refuse to repent and acknowledge it, then it can be a barrier to our relationship with God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. He says, behold, the Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save; neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. He's talking to Israel, by the way. God's people. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. We might move forward into the Gospel accounts, and the statement is made, we know that God does not hear the prayers of sinners. What does He mean? Those who stand in willful opposition to the God of heaven are standing in a place that will not and cannot be acknowledged by God. What happens? We've got to get our lives right in order to get that prayer life back. You see, spiritual problems can really cause difficulties in a life. And when we ignore the wrong in our lives, when individuals ignore the wrong in their lives, then it only compounds the issue. And they're being dishonest when they say that they don't have any sin. Paul would even say in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, for godly sorrow leads to repentance not to be repented of. That is guilt, that godly sorrow and guilt that comes with an acknowledgement of wrongdoing leads to a turn of action, a change of heart, a desire to do those things that are right. But the sorrow of the world leads to death. When we bottle up that sin and we refuse to acknowledge it, when we refuse to repent and come back to God in contrition... Then we move further and further and further away from God and we develop that hard heart, that calloused conscience as Paul would tell Timothy. But note what happens. Here's really the change in verse 5. David finally repents. He says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. Did he hide it? He did hide it for quite a while. He says, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What does he say? There is that final release and the acknowledgement thereof. We can move forward and pass those things that once held us in opposition to God. When those things are acknowledged, we can move forward in a walk that is consistent with what God would have us to be. But they have to be acknowledged. And so David finds comfort and rest in the Lord only after he has confessed those sins... You see, there is comfort in God when we are right with Him. We might think of the psalm in Psalm 23. There, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. God is the God of all comfort, as Paul would say. But God is no longer displeased either with David after he repented. You might think about those individuals who stand in opposition to God and repent, and we wonder, you know, what will happen after they come back? How will they be received? By the brethren? How will they be received by God? Think about Joel chapter 2 and what is made there, the statement made there concerning God's people if they repent. In verse 25, he says, I will restore unto you the years that the locusts have eaten. Think about the statement... God's graciousness will be extended and favor will be extended to those who acknowledge wrong and have a sincere desire to turn and do right. God is telling His people through the prophet Joel, if you repent and come back to Me, then I will restore to you those things that have been taken away. See, we need to understand though that every time we have a separation from God, there are things that are lost. One of the greatest things that tends to suffer is that avenue of prayer. Revelation 3 and verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And we can see that picture of fellowship open before those who are willing to let the Christ back in. If we do let that sin go, if we acknowledge it, there's a few things that it doesn't mean. It does not mean that we are not sorrowful or remorseful for the things that we have done. I know individuals who have come out of sin, who have come out of problems, who have come out of issues, wrestled with guilt, finally laid down the guilt and the shame and moved forward in their walk with God only to be met with people saying, well, they're too cavalier in their Christianity. They don't care enough. Who puts the restriction on how remorseful we are to be after we've rectified a wrong in a life? Where does that come from? I believe all of us, when we acknowledge what God's graciousness is, and we've come to understand His uh, forgiveness, we can appreciate it all the more. But uh, you're right, it doesn't mean that we're cavalier in those sins anymore, but it means we've laid them down and there's no shame or guilt in them. Paul acknowledged his sin, he acknowledged what he did, but he didn't let it hinder him in his walk with God. God. We are also not abusing the forgiveness that is offered. God offers forgiveness for a reason because all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a one of us who've done or lived perfectly up to this point. So we know that God will offer that forgiveness. But it also does mean that we have truly found the only comfort and solace that can be offered. We're humble enough to admit our faults and failings and we can rejoice in the joy that is found in Christ. Now look at God's provision for David. Verses 8 through 11. He says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which you shall go. I will guide you with my eye. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy all ye that are upright in heart. We see a stark change from the David in verses 3-7 through to the David that we see here now. What is he really saying? He's saying, I will instruct others in how to come to God. When we look at Psalm 51, it is not a teaching psalm. It is not a didactic psalm in any way other than to see the contrition of a man who's been completely humbled when called out for his sins and wrongdoing. We see him acknowledge it. We see the sincere repentance there. We might call to mind the verse in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with Thy free spirit. What is he saying? I acknowledge this wrong. I've come back to you. And now in Psalm 32, we get a little bit more of a a macro perspective. A looking back, if you will, on that instance. And David writing from perspective. From history. From experience. Saying, this is how I felt when I refused to acknowledge my sin. Psalm 51, he acknowledged it. Psalm 32 he's saying this is how I felt. When I refused to when I acknowledged it things cleared up. Things got better. My relationship with God was improved. I can now instruct others how to have a better relationship with God because I know what it means to ask God for forgiveness, to truly and in sincerity repent. And what does he say? See, he says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. Speaking on behalf of God here, I will guide thee with mine eye. And what statement does he make? He says, be not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto, me, unto thee. What does that statement mean? How many of you have ever worked with mules? My well, pops has told me a lot about mules, and I appreciate that. I have a much healthier perspective on the stubbornness of that animal. One of the things that you have to do with a mule is you have to bridle them. They won't just go where you want to unless they are absolutely well-trained. But even then, I wouldn't count on it. So you put a bit and bridle in their mouth and you force them in the direction that you want them to go. What is the psalmist here saying? David is saying, do not be as a brute beast as someone that has to be forced into a direction. See, when it comes to repentance, it should be of our own volition. There should be a change that comes because we have a change of heart, not a change of surrounding or scenario. How many people do you know who have situations befall them that are difficult? And they say, well, maybe, maybe God's wanting me to repent of such and such. And they begin to go through all of the wrongs that they, they think that they have done. I think that God is forcing them into repentance. What happened to Job? Job was upright in heart, upright in character. We know bad things befell him. But individuals should not have to be coerced into repentance. You see, the relationship that we have with God should be valued enough that we choose to make it right again. I've heard it said, if you lend your brother-in-law $20 and he never calls you back or sees you again, was it worth it? What is he saying there? You don't want to come around because you don't want to pay $20 back. What's the point? There ought to be a desire to have that relationship restored again. The love that we have for God should be evident in a life that seeks to serve Him. And when we do come to God in true contrition and repentance, we can be taught. He says, don't be as that individual that has to be forced around. What does he say about the wicked? He says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy will compass him about. Mercy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. You see, God's compelling pressure is to force the will to a higher purpose in our lives. When those things happen, and we begin to feel that, that hand upon us, that guilt. It's there for a reason. When the conscience has been properly trained and we understand what it's there for, to remind us of those things that we've done wrong, it's to force us into a right action, prompt us to a right relationship with God and with our fellow man, and hopefully recover that relationship. And when it goes ignored, then a life deteriorates and gets worse. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. The exhortation of Psalm 32 is that of the blessing in having a right relationship with God. It's of establishing that relationship where sin is no longer a part of it. It is becoming God's friend again. And being able to commune with God, as the psalmist says, upon thy bed. Being able to talk with God. Being able to have that avenue of prayer and approach. That we can come boldly before the throne. Not shamefacedly before the throne. But boldly that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every child of God should avail themselves of the avenue of prayer. And to allow guilt and sin to stand in the way of us going to the God of heaven, to me, is absolutely absurd. If there is sin in a life it needs to be acknowledged, dealt with, and needs to be repented of, so that we can move on in our walk with God in confidence and surety. Not struggling and wrestling with the guilt that comes, or maybe the shame of the sins that we've committed. We need to be solid and confident in who God is and His desire to forgive. What causes difficulties in a life? What can keep us from the throne room? Sin will do it. See, sin in any life will separate us from the God of heaven. How is it easy, though, to be free from guilt? I know we all have long memories. We remember the things that we've done, and maybe upon recollection, those pangs of guilt come back. At some point, we've got to let them go and move forward. We are our own worst critic, and because of this, we sometimes hold on to things that need to be let go. You see, David taught Israel and us the beauty and the truth of sincere repentance and its effect on a prayer life for those who love God. See, he says in Psalm 32, when I was silent, your hand was heavy upon me. When I didn't acknowledge it, my relationship was not there. It was gone. When I acknowledged it, then you forgave me. Psalm 51, verse 12 and verse 13, I think are vitally important to this discussion. Note what he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. He says he will teach transgressors God's ways. When we examine Psalm 32, this can be nothing but an outpouring of this desire to teach others on how we are to approach God and deal with sin in a life when it's unmitigated and undealt with. David is here doing that, but there is one word that I think is important in this verse. Restore. You see, everyone can restore a relationship that was lost. Everyone can come back to God. There's never a point at which we cease to be cared for by the God of heaven. I know individuals who refuse to come back because they think their sins are too grievous or too heinous that God would ever forgive them. And that could not be further from the truth. God wants everyone to come back to Him in true contrition and repentance. You see, when we have the avenue of prayer extended to us, then you and I can approach the God of heaven as David did and have that fellowship and that communion that all of us long for in our walk with God. Are we availing ourselves of the avenue of prayer? Or are we allowing sin in a life to keep us from God's throne? If you realize this morning that you have allowed things in your life to keep you from your relationship with God, to keep you from working on that relationship and growing in your faith, we offer an opportunity for you to make those things known this morning if you have that need. And if you have not put Christ on an immersion, you can't and do not have that mediator that is found in Jesus the Christ, we offer you that opportunity to have your sins remissed, being buried in the waters of baptism and raised to walk in a new life. If you have any need this morning, won't you come as we stand and sing our song of encouragement?